wait for something to happen behind this screen and this banner to be knocked over. Okay, so... <laughs> Let me say what a marvellous privilege it's been to be with you this weekend. Uh, Sue and I have just thoroughly enjoyed uh, spending time with you and uh, catching up with you, getting to know you, uh, getting to know your names, getting to forget your names, you know, all those sort of things. It's... Uh, uh, it, it has been a great delight and it, I don't know if you're like me but I get to this stage at a, a conference and I think we're just getting warmed up you know uh, wouldn't it be great if we were here for about a month uh, you know, that'd, uh, that'd be a good thing but there's a sense of you know suddenly we're at the end almost and uh, we've only just begun I'm sure those who were up till 1.30 last night playing indoor soccer though probably are thinking it's, it actually is time to go home really and uh, catch up on some sleep and uh, don't think I won't be watching you while I'm talking this morning. No? I will be. Those drooping eyes, I'll pick them. I just want to promote a couple of things off the bookstore. Uh, we've been talking about the will of God. Let me tell you what the will of God is. It is that uh, no books would return to the Christian bookstore after this conference. All right? So uh, uh, you need to buy them all before they go. Um, a couple of things. First is uh, a music CD. Uh, at Trinity, one of the rules of our church is don't let Paul near a microphone if he wants to sing. All right? That's uh, one of the rules we have, and there's a good reason for that rule, let me say. Uh, uh, but I need to promote this CD. It's by uh, Mark Peterson, Whatever Happens. The reason I'm promoting it is because Mark is our music director at Trinity, and uh, he will be very uh, upset with me if I don't promote his music. No, not true, actually. But uh, Mark is a great guy. He's uh, theologically trained, spent four years at college, and uh, has worked out how to do uh, a word ministry with music. That's been his priority. His concern is that people would uh, understand the truth of the scripture as uh, he works at uh, his songwriting and musical stuff. We benefit from his servant-hearted leadership at Trinity. And I don't just mean his CDs, but music is actually a wonderful way um, uh, for you to be learning the truth of the scripture. Most Sundays I come home and there'll be a song stuck in my head uh, that is scripturally based. It just rolls around in my head, often for days. Even if I don't like the song, actually, I find that that's the case. <laughs> uh, but the scripture is still there and uh, it's enormously beneficial, especially in a city like yours where you're travelling a lot, having stuff on... Um, uh, your uh, MP3, you know, that, that sort of stuff to listen to either music or talks. Great way to actually feed your heart and your mind. A few books also I thought I'd just uh, promote with you. Um, a couple by Don Carson, How Long O Lord? The issue of suffering and struggling in this world is a big one. Uh, Don Carson has written this book about the issue of uh, suffering, God's uh, perspective on that and thinking. Anything Don Carson writes is good. You know, is Don is good. All right? It is a very, very, very good book. Um, and I commend it to you. It's not easy work, uh, but it pays huge dividends. Uh, this is probably one of the best books that's been written on this topic. There are shorter ones, but generally they're not as good. All right? So uh, worthwhile reading. Another one by Don Carson is around the... Uh, uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, right? basics for believers. It, it, uh, nothing Don Carson writes is basic really, but this one's quite thin, you see, very thin book, all right? uh, dense but good. Um, he, he really is uh, an extremely good evangelical writer and uh, I commend anything he writes to you. Another one is by uh, Vaughan Roberts. Has Vaughan ever been here to KL? Okay, so you, you're familiar with him probably, but uh, he has that 
an English capacity to write succinctly. You know, they speak that way, they write that way as well. Uh, it's a gift really, isn't it? It's marvellous. Uh, and this book on true worship helps you to think about the whole nature of your relationship with God. There's a lot of um, absolute rubbish that people talk about when it comes to worship uh, in Christian circles. And a lot of it's uh, uh, Mickey Mouse pagan nonsense. Australians have a great capacity to be subtle. Uh, but uh, uh, let me say that uh, there, there is. There's a lot of silly stuff that's talked about that's not biblical when it comes to worship. Great book uh, on a biblical perspective on worship. We need the Bible to reform our thinking, our hearts and our language as well when it comes to the issue of worship. So they're, they're just a few books. But as I say, uh, be like locusts. Strip that book table bare when you have your break uh, because it is a marvellous way to um, feed your minds and your hearts so that you can grow as disciples of Christ. All right? Please do that. We come to uh, last of our... Our talks on the whole issue of uh, guidance. Why don't I just pray for us as we uh, consider the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, what has been a marvellous weekend together. We know that weekends like this are are a gift from your hand. And Father, our prayer is that uh, you'll continue to work in our hearts and minds now. Uh, There will be people who do number our days aright that we will have wise hearts, that we'll know that the the grass and the flowers, they will fade, but your word will last. Father, give us that eternal perspective on our lives. Help us to be people who uh, don't have a walled view of this world where we think that all we can see, taste, touch and feel, that is all there is. Father, we know that's the way this world works. That's, That's its heartbeat. And yet, Father, you have given us an eternal perspective and we pray that the imprint of eternity will be stamped on our minds and hearts so we will be wise people, people who fear you and long to serve you with uh, everything that we have. Father, that is our desire. We know it's only possible by the work of your Spirit and we pray that in in part measure uh, we'll experience that today as we think about uh, the great idol of our age, money. Help us to be wise people, we pray. Amen. You'll, uh, in your small groups, come across this question to get you started. Let me read it to you. It's on uh, page 31 if you want to follow. Andrew Cheer approaches you to discuss buying a new car. Uh, He has an opportunity to purchase a new Series 3 BMW at a very good price a diocesan corporate purchasing plan, no less. Andrew tells you it will be a financial stretch to buy the vehicle, but having prayed about it, he has a strong sense of God's peace concerning the decision. Okay? How would you advise Andrew? When I I sent this to Andrew, actually, and said he might want to just screen it before it gets printed, and he emailed me back saying he thought he belonged to the wrong diocese and that obviously Adelaide had much better corporate purchasing plans for their vehicles. (laughs) than you do here in, uh, in West Malaysia. So there you go. There's nothing in the Bible particularly about buying cars that I can find anyway. Uh, it's not sort of a common thing that seems to be talked about. Uh, so what sort of perspective do we have when we come to these sort of issues? If you're a Christian person here today, uh, let me say 
you will have thought about this issue of what you do with your money. And if you have any sensitivity at all as a Christian person, this will be something that at different points has occupied your thinking. Uh, you've wondered, have you, got, have you got your heart right in this area? Uh, you'll have felt that sense of, you know, uh, how do I decide this one? Uh, when is enough enough? What do I do with my money? How self-indulgent am I being? Am I giving enough away for the kingdom of God? If you are a person in whom God's spirit dwells, you'll have wrestled with these sort of questions just as I have over the years. How do we think about this one? In Australia, let me say, money is one of those personal things. Um, I decide what I do with my money and we generally don't talk about it uh, in polite circles. Right? Uh, sex, politics, money. Right? Uh, but especially money. Actually, we're quite happy to talk about politics and sex. It's just money, really, that we can't talk about in Australia. Now, I don't know what it's like here in KL. Do you have many dinner parties talking about what you earn and how you spend it and all that sort of thing? I suspect it's probably a bit the same. Is that right? Yeah, a bit the same. Because we are fundamentally uh, wired... Uh, to protect ourselves, uh, especially in the areas where the sin comes close. Uh, this is a big, big area. It's big in Australia. It's big in KL. Do you know why it's big? It's because it's big in the world. It's because of our sinful sort of nature. Okay, how do we think about this issue, God's will for our lives when it comes to our money? Let me remind you of the key principles uh, as we start out. The sufficiency of scripture. All we need to know for godliness is in the Bible. Okay? I want to affirm that that is true in this instance as we address money as in every area of importance. All right? Scriptures are sufficient. God is sovereign and he loves us. He rules and care for, cares for us. We can trust him. That was the point of the reading we just heard in Matthew chapter 6. He is one who superintends his world, his world. Everything you have is his. He, he rules it with graciousness and kindness. We can trust him. Uh, normally we don't think that's the case. We think we should trust ourselves. And if God backs us up, that would be nice. You know? uh, uh, God helps those who help themselves. Right? Uh, help yourself. That's the key principle in life. Not Christian. Right? How do we think it through? When it comes to the issue of money, are there any moral sort of boundary lines that we need to draw? We've already looked at some of those. Ephesians 4 verse 28 talks about thieves no longer stealing. If that's your occupation, you should stop it now. Don't don't steal any longer. That's the, uh, the point of the Bible. What else does it say? Well, no, it's more about um, having your heart shaped. Now, there are a couple of other areas that we're going to be looking at. Um, Colossians 3 verse 5 says, Greed is idolatry. And it picks up on the Old Testament notion of worshipping false gods. And then you come to the New Testament and it says, you know that Old Testament worshipping of false gods? Well, we would never do that. It says, greed is exactly the same. Now, how many of you are greedy? So you're not sure if you should put up your hand or not, are you? Yeah. <laughs> you sort of think maybe I should, but, mm, you know. And those who put up your hand, you don't really think you are, actually, do you? Like, you sort of do and sort of don't, you know. It, it's, you know what I mean? It, it actually is difficult uh, to work this out. Am I greedy or aren't I greedy? It's not completely straightforward. 
There's also quite a lot in the Bible about uh, wisdom uh, when it comes to this issue and the whole idea of uh, folly. And at this point I'm talking about Proverbs type wisdom, the sort of wisdom that reflects fear of the Lord, not scared of the Lord, but respectful of God and who he is and everything he stands for in this world. Those are the sort of things we need to wrestle with as we consider this uh, this whole matter. I'd like to just stop for a moment and talk a little more though about biblical wisdom uh, because uh, it's a category all of its own and we get it confused with uh, a sort of worldly wisdom. Uh, I went to a funeral just a little while ago and the son that spoke about his father was a young man that I discipled. He spoke, he spoke very well at his father's funeral. He died of cancer, a man who'd uh, retired at 60 with squillions of dollars and uh, three weeks after he retired got cancer and died within six months. Right? He uh, had great plans for how he was going to spend his money. His son at the funeral stood up and said, my father had a great nose for a business deal. Right? And he did. He was very, very good at business and had made all sorts of smart investments, running against the tide quite often, but made money almost every time. That's a wisdom, isn't there? There's a wisdom to that. And there's some forms of wisdom in the Bible that equate with that. They're actually, the Bible says there are non-Christians who have wisdom. It's interesting, when you go to Proverbs, for example, if you went to Proverbs chapter 30, it talks about uh, the ant being wise. Isn't that interesting? Now, are ants converted? Uh, I suspect not. I don't think many have made personal confessions of faith in Christ. Uh, many ants have. And yet, they're described as being wise uh, in Proverbs because they have a certain, certain intelligence about the way they, they operate with animal instinct in our world. And there's a sense in which that man who died, his son spoke about his father having good animal instinct wisdom. Right? There's a certain, certain wisdom like that that operates in the world. And yet the biblical wisdom that dominates uh, the Bible when we come to this issue of wisdom is that Proverbs 9 verse 10 wisdom, which says, Fear of the Lord, that is the beginning of wisdom. Now, at this point, let me say, no non-Christian can be wise. Ian picked up on that issue yesterday when he asked the question about what if your parents are Buddhist and Hindu, can they give you good advice? Now, one level, they can't. They have no wisdom at all when it comes to spiritual matters. And people who are non-Christian are fundamentally, essentially, at the most important level of life, they are unwise because they have no fear of the Lord. That's just the reality. It's that overwhelming sense of God's authority and love and mercy and compassion and appreciate, appreciating that that is to dominate our perspective on life and shape everything we do. That's fear. Fear of the Lord. That's uh, biblical wisdom. I'll come, to that, come back to that in a few moments. When we come to this issue of money, I'm... Uh, over the years, I've just observed there are all sorts of different influences that affect people when it comes to money. A lot of background thinking. So, I've listed a few of them there. Uh, the whole way in which money affects us in terms of our background. It affects our attitudes. 
Uh, I mentioned, I think, yesterday about the couple who came to see me. They'd been married 12 months and they're fighting about money. Um, the fight they had essentially was um, how should they invest their money? He's an engineer. He was earning, I think, he's had $160,000 a year at this present point in time. She was a nurse earning $80,000 a year or something like that. They're not doing too bad for a, uh, a couple of people without kids. Right? And they're thinking, well, we ought to be, you know, squirrelling away all this money and investing and making money. At least that's what he was thinking. She was worried they'd get greedy and get gobbled up by their investments. They didn't quite know what to do about that, so they came to talk to me. And uh, I asked him, you know, what was his goal in life? And he talked about, you know, investing in property, making millions of dollars. And I said, why do you want to do that? He looked at me like I was an idiot. And he said, what do you mean, you know? Like, isn't it obvious? Uh, He 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 didn't say, you're an idiot. He just looked at me like I was, you know? And um, I picked up the subtlety in his eyes. Hmm. Uh, (laughs) You know, you really have been out of the real world for a long time, haven't you, Pastor? Um, But that's the question you often have to ask, why? And he said he wanted to be his own boss. And I just told him I was so disappointed that that was the extent of his ambition as a Christian person, to be his own boss. Why make millions and millions of dollars so you can be autonomous? See, what's, what's the point of that? It's not very wise, is it? And I said, I'd be much happier if you told me how your goal was shaped by your fear of the Lord and your desire to serve him. That was a bit of a sharp rebuke. Uh, he hasn't left my church yet, that's good. Uh, but uh, do you mean we need to be thinking tough about this sort of area, don't, don't we? Attitudes, you've got to consider your attitudes. Family background is incredibly important when it comes to this question of money, I've discovered. In fact, I discovered it uh, as soon as I married Sue. Uh, because we have very different family backgrounds when it comes to money. Right? I, I come from a family where my father was a bank manager. Uh, my mother and father were born in the Great Depression, and we were we could never possibly have enough money. Right? It didn't matter. It wouldn't matter how much money we had in the bank. There would never be enough because you just had to keep saving, 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 saving. saving. Now, if I asked my parents why they were saving, they probably couldn't have told me. They just would know instinctively it was the smart thing to do. See? Then I married Sue. Sue's family background was a tad different from mine. Uh, professional people, but their philosophy was money was for spending before you got it. Uh, now this didn't match my family background so save, 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 save spend before you get, spend before you get save, 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 spend before you get save, 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 save whoa, <laughs> marriage <laughs> and uh, I remember some of our earlier expeditions in the supermarket were quite splendid occasions as we went up and down looking at what was essential to buy uh, family background's huge isn't it and if you haven't sort of identified where you come from and uh, how that has shaped you, then you need to do it because it is powerful. Cultural background can be significant. As I say, I've, I've now, I'm now an expert in culture over here in Malaysia, having been here for now 36 hours. <laughs> uh, I can't really tell you what's going on here. Uh, but in Australia, uh, the great cultural things are to buy your own home, and to be able to enjoy your leisure time and take excellent holidays. Um, you know, it's those sort of things that dominate our existence. The good life, healthy life. Uh, you know, people spend a huge amount on gym memberships these days. 
uh, gyms that have excellent mirrors so we can look at ourselves in the mirrors. You know. um, people tell me, they take me to gyms and they tell me that those mirrors are there for technique, right? And, but my observation is some people are much more preoccupied with technique than others, right? Uh, some people love observing themselves in mirrors, gyms. Uh, you know, that, it's the good life that people are into. I expect that there are cultural things here in KL that also dominate uh, your existence. Our experiences. My uh, daughter, Kate, has a friend of hers who grew up in a family where her parents just fought endlessly about money and they never had enough. They were never wise, even in a worldly sense, with their money. And this girl hated it. So all through high school... And now she's beyond high school. She has been working so hard as she studied to save, 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 save. Because she is determined she will never be in the same situation as her parents. Your experiences, they'll shape the way you think about money as well. And friends, our sin, our sin, our sinful hearts, they shape the way we think about money. Come with me to, um, uh, to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Let's look at that together. Great passage, Luke 16. Uh, On the whole question of money, how we're to think about the shrewd manager. I'll come back to it in a few moments, but let me just read uh, from verse 13. Similar to what we heard in Matthew just a little while ago. No servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. They said to them, he said to them, sorry, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Can't serve God and money? Okay? Most of us think we'll give it a pretty good shot, though. That's the trouble. Right? We, we like, can't serve God money. Who thinks we can serve God money? No one. No one thinks we can serve God money. But in practice, we all try. Right? That's the issue, isn't it? It's not the principle in theory. It's the work in practice. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. Now, tell me, how much do you think the Pharisees were giving for the work of the Lord? Just you know, pluck a figure out of the air for me. How much were they giving for the work of the Lord? Yeah, they were tithing. These were serious religious people. All right? In fact, they were probably giving more than 10% for the work of the Lord, given the Old Testament rules and principles. Okay, now, I'm just going to do a straw poll. How many people are giving more than 10%? No, I won't do that to you. But, uh, <laughs> but ask yourself the question. See, how many of you are giving more than 10% for the work of the Lord? Now, what does Jesus say to them? These givers of huge amounts of money for the work of the Lord, they loved money. How interesting. Giving away so much. And yet they love it. And Jesus rebukes them. He's... These are the ones that Jesus is saying, you can't serve both God and money. They're serving money, even though they're giving so much away. Right, if you're not giving away 10%, friends, you're in big trouble on every count, aren't you? Now, I'm not not trying to be legalistic here at this point. You understand what I'm trying to get at? 
How do you know if you're a lover of money? How do you know? Our sin, sinfulness of heart, recognise that you too struggle with this area of sin. It's an issue for us. Let's turn. Let's think about the Bible on money. I'll come back to some of these issues as we go along. The Bible and money. Turn with me to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. It's a great uh, psalm, this one, on the whole uh, nature of our relationship with God and God's relationship to his created order uh, and how that has implications for us. So with you all spending time over this one and, uh, and thinking about it, I'll just read from verses 24 to 30. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There's a sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan, which you formed, to frolic there. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. Here is the creator God. He's made absolutely everything. And our economy is fundamentally dependent upon him. He is the ruler. He owns it all. And we're just the subtenants. That's the picture that we have. When you come to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, it talks about the way in which God has created us to be his agents in the world. He is the landlord. We are the tenants superintending what he's entrusted to us and we have responsibility for that. If we come to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4 verses 3 to 5, uh, turn to that with me. That would be worthwhile looking up together. 1 Timothy 4 verses 3 to 5. When I was preparing these talks, I thought one of the uh, sub-benefits would be that you become much more familiar with your Bible after we do a series of studies, you know, so... uh, 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 5. talks about some of the, um, the false teachers and the problems there. And then he, he says, verse 3, They forbid people to marry, order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Receive all that God has created with thanksgiving. He's done a marvellously good job. These verses are very important. And my observation uh, in evangelical circles is that we can tend to be mean and um, uh, hard with ourselves uh, not appreciating how good this world is that God has created. It has its problems and there are all sorts of issues. It's a fractured world out of step with God. But essentially God has made it well and good. You know, travelling up uh, from KL to here and just appreciating how green everything is 
If you've ever been to Australia, you can travel for 300 kilometres and not see a tree, right? Just sort of flat, brown, nothing, you know. Uh, here, you know, just the observing creation, how marvellous it is. And it's meant to be enjoyed. You're meant to enjoy the good world that God has made, okay? That's the way God has put it together. We're meant to appreciate it. God is the ruler of all things. We are the subtenants. And it is created good for us to enjoy. Good things. But there are also a lot of warnings in the Bible concerning uh, money, concerning stuff taking over your life. So Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24, that was the passage that was read for us. Let's uh, turn back to that. Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24. Part of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus teaching uh, his disciples. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, so where's your treasure? Where's your investment? Let's ask, practically speaking, uh, how much you're investing in the work of the rapid spread of the gospel? Okay? Where's your treasure? Uh, I live among a nation that puts themselves in huge debt to pay off a house, a mortgage for the rest of their lives. Where's their treasure? Where's their heart? Friends, do the sums. Why not just check out your budget if you happen to have one and have a look at it? Because each line will tell you something about where your treasure is, where your heart is. And consider the line which is devoted to the spread of the gospel. Where is your treasure? Where is your heart? Is it locked away in heaven? Does it have eternity stamped? Do you, on your budget, have eternity stamped all over your budget? How does eternity shape you at the most practical of levels? This is not a theoretical question. This is one we're meant to ask tough questions about. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is. Your great investment in this world, what it tells you is you are an idolater. You are greedy. Because you're so in love with this world that you put your money into that. We're meant to ask hard questions. That's what we're called to do here. When you go to Ephesians 5, 5, Colossians 3, 5, it talks about greed being idolatry. The question here, I think, is to ask yourself, because it is hard, even if you say you're greedy, you think you're not really, you know, you're you're a bit, you know it's a problem, but you know, it's a wrestle sort of issue. I think one of the most practical questions you can ask is, as your non-Christian work colleagues, neighbours, friends, as they observe your life, and will they say, you are obviously a Christian because of the way in which you spend your money. Now, you've got to be a bit careful there uh, because how will they know how you spend your money? Unless you're splashing it around and trying to draw attention to yourself. There's another problem in there, isn't there? Uh, you know, uh, you have received your award if that's the case. Uh, but, but there is an issue of observing the the difference that Jesus makes to your life. 
I mentioned a man uh, in my congregation, Dennis. He took the demotion. Uh, Dennis lives in one of the poorest suburbs of Adelaide, um, in a simple house with his family. And yet, he is one of the high-flying engineers in our city and in Australia. It's an extraordinary thing. He's made choices not to just swim with the tide, but to swim following the Lord Jesus Christ in a different direction. Now, anyone who observes his life has got to go, what is going on here? Okay, people observe your life. I say, you're obviously a Christian because of the way in which you tick. Do they? There are some money and obedience questions. Let me press on. This is all to do with how God shapes our minds and hearts and thinking when it comes to money. There are obedience issues. Uh, I've already mentioned one, Ephesians 4.28. Thieves no longer steal. Uh, If you're stealing, stop it. Um, Proverbs 28, verse 27. We're told we're to look after the poor. There are other instructions about that in the New Testament, especially the poor among the people of God. You come to Luke 16. Uh, We just looked at the the parable of the, uh, the shrewd manager. Straight after that, there's a story about the rich man and Lazarus. You know, Lazarus at his doorstep. Um, the rich man comes out, steps over him every day to get into his limousine to go off. And at the end of the day, the parable says, the rich man's in hell, Lazarus is in heaven with Abraham. Why is the rich man in hell, according to that parable? Because he was mean to the poor man. He wasn't generous to the poor man. That's the only reason why he's in hell. See? It's a serious matter to actually care for the poor. You go to a place like Romans 13 that talks about making sure you pay your taxes. Uh, trying to avoid your taxes, um, you'll be spending time with, uh, uh, with the rich man in hell. That's the point that's being made. Because greed drives your life. That's why you don't pay your taxes. See, it's sharp warnings, actually, as you come to the scripture about how we should shape our lives, okay? Then there are money, wisdom sort of issues. Are you feeling uncomfortable yet? There's a sense in which the, the Bible's meant to make us a bit uncomfortable at this point, isn't it? But it's a hard thing to talk about because we, we privatise this issue. We make it a thing of personal, you know, personal importance, not corporate importance. Right? It's meant to make us feel uncomfortable. Then there are, there are wisdom issues when it comes to money. Remember wisdom, fear of the Lord. Uh, that is at the heart of what it means to be a wise person. There are a number of shades of wisdom as we uh, work through this issue of money. There are right, wrong decisions you can make, obedient, disobedient sort of decisions. So, again, Proverbs 1, if you looked at Proverbs 1 verses 13 and 19, you'd see that, again, stealing is ruled out. That's a disobedience matter. So it's unwise at that point because it's disobedient. There are attitudes that are meant to be shaped by God's word. Proverbs 16 verse 8 says, Get wisdom, not money. Uh, Get wisdom, not money. Wisdom, that is, grow in your fear of the Lord rather than chase after money. There's a good reason for that. And that's because... uh, Fear of the Lord will last for eternity. It is of eternal value and importance. And money is just passing away. 
It's passing away. Fear of the Lord. Seek that, not money. And then there are a number of wisdom principles for living that are elaborated in the Proverbs. Uh, you go to Proverbs 27. Just jot these down, look at them later, and trust me for the moment. Proverbs 27, verses 23 to 27. It talks about having a, um, a stable income before you set out on a course of action. Uh, our daughter Kate, she had a, uh, a year after school where she decided to work and to study. And she wanted to enrol in a course that was going to cost her a number of thousands of dollars. Uh, it was a personal trainer's course. And she figured that would be a smart thing to do so she could earn income while she was going through university. So she wanted to do this course. But she had no money for the course. We encouraged her to get a job to earn the money before she enrolled in the course. See, we thought that was just being wise. She couldn't see the sense of it. But uh, there's a sense in which I think we were... It's the way you're meant to operate, you know, sort of uh, smart to have the money before you make a course of action. Now, Proverbs 21 verses 17 to 20, uh, uh, makes the same sort of point. It says, calculate how much money you need for a task and so don't start the task before you work out if you've got the money. Same sort of idea that comes through there. Right? So there are different proverbs, different sorts of issues of wisdom that come through there that we need to be aware of. The Bible also speaks about uh, responsibilities that we have. Uh, when it comes to money. A number of relational responsibilities. If you turn with me to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Great passage this on um, the whole question of money and uh, how we think about it. Same in um, chapter 6 actually. Very, very helpful uh, verses So 1 Timothy 5, verse 3 following, it says, Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. And then goes on to talk about the responsibilities there. When you go to verse 8, it says, If anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, and especially his immediate family, he's denied the faith. If you go to verse 17, it says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honour. Right? Double Andrew's wage. Do it immediately. Right? Honour him. Uh, that sort of idea. Uh, you know, so the, there are certain responsibilities we have uh, with our resources. Uh, widows, those who, who are uh, in this culture had no source of income really. Uh, they're by themselves without family. Family members, you have responsibilities for those who are dependent upon you. You have responsibilities to care for your pastor. There are a number of other spots that talk about that as well. I've already mentioned the Romans 13 taxes, your responsibilities there. Okay? That is just trying to paint a very brief picture of some of the ways in which the Bible talks about money. Okay? Now, what I want to do just for a few moments is nail down to a very practical issue. I've talked about uh, uh, the whole question of how much you give for gospel work. Let me nail it down with you for a while. Okay, so uh, uh, I want to actually address the whole question of how you should operate with your money when it comes to generously giving for the work of the gospel. Uh, I don't apologise for doing this, uh, and I hope it's helpful to us as we seriously think about our responsibilities in this area. Okay, uh, I preach to myself at the same time uh, because this has been an issue uh, for me over many years trying to work this one out. How much 
should you give away as a Christian person? How much should you give away when it comes to church, to mission, uh, for the poor, for third world? The needs seem endless. How do you work it out? Any, does anyone else struggle with this or is it just me? In which case I can just go off and read my Bible by myself, you know. Um, I, yeah, well, I found it an issue anyway. First question, to tithe or not to tithe? Uh, in the Old Testament, there are a series of instructions given for the people of God when it comes to tithing. Uh, you can read about those in Leviticus 27, Deuteronomy 12. I've got the, the references there. Uh, tithing is just a, a religious way of saying 10%ing. Right? 10%ing. Uh, although when you go through the Old Testament, what you discover is that there are a number of uh, tithes that kick in. It's actually a little tricky to work out exactly how much the tithe comes to, uh, but certainly it was much more than 10%. Uh, probably somewhere between 20 and 30% is what people think. Um, But the function of the tithe was a little different Old Testament-wise to our situation now. It was like a a form of religious taxation in a sense and it was distributed in different directions. So um, you discovered that some of it went to the uh, the Levites, you know, the people who maintained the temple and uh, supported them for their work of establishing the gospel at the heart of the Israelite nation and maintaining it there. Some of it just went on parties, you know. They all kicked in this money and they had a big corporate celebration to celebrate how good God had been. They knew how to have a good time, the Israelites, right? You read through the Old Testament, they're constantly having parties. Uh, you know, so there's that sense of celebrating the great goodness of God. They used some of it to... Uh, look after the poor in their community. So it got distributed in different sorts of directions with different sorts of responsibilities. That's the way the tithe worked. Now, does the tithe, is that the measure for the way in which Christians should operate today? Does the Old Testament tithe transfer into the New Testament? Turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. I'll read from verse 19 actually. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. Though I'm free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those who are under the law. Paul's very clear here that in terms of the Mosaic law, he, he may choose to follow it at points to win those who are still under the law, but he's not bound by the law of Moses. And I think that is exactly the same case when it comes to this issue of tithing. And if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, turn over to that with me. We'll stay in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 for a while, so do turn that up with me. But if you go to 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, in a, an extended section on teaching on this issue of money and giving, uh, Paul says, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's no law there, is there? Uh, Make a decision and cheerfully 
give. That's the principle being elaborated here. I don't think we're in any way bound by the tithe of the Old Testament. I don't think it applies today. I'm not saying it's not a bad sort of benchmark or you know, guide or it informs your thinking about resources as you consider the unfolding plan of God in the Bible, but we're not bound by the Old Testament law. Excellent. So we don't have to give anything. Or oh, Bible's closed, let's go home, you know. Uh, well, it probably doesn't end there. Uh, but what is the Christian alternative then? If we're not bound by the law. The New Testament, I think, speaks to both the principle and the practice when it comes to giving. And I want to just spend some time in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 pulling out the, uh, the essential motivations and drive when it comes uh, to giving. And then I want to make some observations about a way to go forward in doing it. Okay? First thing is this. What we should observe here in these chapters and all through the New Testament, in fact, the motivation for everything you do as a Christian, including giving, is an understanding of the grace of God. Right? Understanding the grace of God drives the way in which you determine how you will give. Right? So if you come with me to uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 3... He speaks about the Macedonian churches. Verse 2, he says, Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Verse 3, For I testify they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. Isn't this interesting? The Macedonian Christians, obviously quite poor, gave beyond what they could afford and Paul commends them for it. They gave more than they should have and Paul commends them for their stupidity. For they aren't being stupid, are they? They are, from a worldly perspective, being quite stupid, giving more than they could afford. But from the perspective of fear of the Lord, they are being gracious and generous beyond their capacity because that is what they have learnt from God. See, grace is driving their thinking. It's the same when you come to uh, verse 11. Finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it, your gift for the, um, the Christians in Jerusalem who are suffering, suffering from uh, uh, famine, right? that's the purpose of this gift, finish the work so your eager willing, willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For your for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to one has, not according to one, what one doesn't have. Right? That, that idea of um, finishing the work of grace that God has started in your life. He goes on, uh, or in fact go back to say verse 6. You see the same idea coming up there. We urge Titus since he'd earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Right? Giving is an act of grace. Verse 7, the same idea comes forward. Just as you excel in every, everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Now, we know that we cannot be Christians except by the grace of God. We know that the grace of God, Andrew was talking about last night, drives our thinking about who we are as God's people. 
If you have a struggle with being generous with your money, it's a budgeting problem, right? Obviously, it's just you're having trouble managing your budget. Wrong. You have a problem because you, you don't appreciate the grace of God, friends. Otherwise, you'd be more generous. That's the simple message of the Bible. You struggle to be generous with your money because you do not understand the grace of God towards you in Christ. That is the reason. There is no other reason at the heart of your problem except that reason. Grace drives everything, including our generosity as God's people. You find yourself struggling to be generous? You have not appreciated what God has done for you and his son on the cross. You say, yes, I have. And I'm saying, no, you haven't. Because the Bible says you haven't. The Bible says if you struggle to be good at giving away your money, it's because you actually don't believe the way you should that Jesus died for your sins. You don't. That's the point here. I'm not saying you don't know it. I'm saying you haven't taken it on board sufficiently in this area. You see, if, we, if we're struggling with a church budget, I don't know what happens at some areas, but uh, if you struggle with a church budget, you can get people together and teach them how to budget better, which is a complete waste of time. Well, no, it's not a complete waste of time, but it's not much of, much of a point. What you need to do is to teach them about the cross. Right? Um, Stephen was talking about that, that uh, conference coming out later in the year on the cross of Christ. If you want to be a more generous person with your money, go to that conference. Right? That's the key to being generous. That's what we're being taught here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's a spiritual problem if you struggle to be generous. There are other points that come out in this chapter. Let me just summarise them briefly for you. Uh, God is put forward as the model for giving. It's this idea of grace again. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 9, for example. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty... Um, you might become rich. Now, you notice that Jesus was a tither. You read that all the time in the New Testament, don't you? Just tithed steadily every week, made sure he made his way to the temple and gave a lot of money away. In fact, there's only one point, I think, in the New Testament where Jesus sends off his disciples to find some coins and a fish. The fish fish was generous and gave his life, uh, as well as a couple of coins so that Jesus could pay the temple tax. Okay? Apart from that, you don't see Jesus giving money away at all much, do you? But still he is the model for generous giving. For the Lord of heaven comes into this world and gives his life for his people. God is the model giver. And so that shapes our thinking about how we give. The key is to give ourselves to the Lord. You give yourself to the Lord, your money comes with you. It's the same truth. If I um, go back to KL, my wallet will come with me. See, it's just sort of my wallet follows me wherever I go. It's me and my wallet, you know, and it's that sort of idea. Same sort of idea, you give yourself to the Lord, your money comes with you. It's a package deal. That comes out clearly in uh, chapter 8, verse 5. Our attitude is more important than the amount you give. This is significant. Uh, You see examples of it, the widow who gives just a couple of coins, but her heart is for the Lord as opposed to those flourishing sort of uh, givers of more money who want everyone to see it around the temple. Right? But it's the same sort of idea. Attitude more, more important than money. Uh, the point we made about chapter 9, verse 7. Uh, we should be joyful. Uh, chapter 8, verse 2. We should be cheerful. Chapter 9, verse 7. 
Uh, we should be liberal, chapter 8, verse 2. Sacrificial, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 8. Eager, chapter 8, verse 4. There's all sorts of instructions on the way your heart should be. Giving is also a privilege. Uh, do you experience the joy of uh, giving and seeing God use your money for the work of the gospel? Well, that comes through here in this chapter 2. Uh, verse 4, these Macedonians pleaded with us for the privilege of becoming poor to serve other people. What a great quality, eh? When we, I don't know, do you pass a plate around at St Mary's or Smack or how do you give? Back, box at the back, yeah. yeah. We, we pass around, we still pass around plates. Some people direct debit, some, everyone does different things, but uh, we still pass around a plate. I've been in ministry, full-time ministry now, for quite a few years, uh, a bit over 20, okay? Not once, not once, have we passed around the plate and at the end of it someone said, Pastor Harrington, that was so much fun. Can we do it again? You know? Pass the place around again. You know? Never. It's never happened. You know? I'm sure it happens at St Mary's, but, you know, it... Uh... And yet there's that sort of picture here of the joy and privilege of giving. That's a spiritual thing, isn't it? Right? By nature, when I pull out my wallet to part with anything, I don't feel a sense of joy welling up inside of me. Oh, you know? And yet, I've asked God to keep creating in me that joyful spirit to, um, and a generous spirit that I'll delight in giving for the things that are important to him. It's a good thing to cultivate, isn't it? I think that's why sometimes people commit to a tithe because they can sort of get their obligation out of the way you know, and, uh, and get on with spending their money. That is not, it's, not, it's not biblical. It's not the way God wants us to be when it comes to money. Let me talk about giving according to grace. All right? Point C on this outline. I've said that understanding God's grace is the key. So, practically speaking, how does it affect the amount you give? Okay, I'm crashing towards the end here, but I really want you to listen at this point to what I'm about to say. You, uh, what's an average wage here in KL? Just give me a figure. Not your average wage. Uh, you know, we'll take a straw poll. But yeah, just you know, you know, average professional wage of say a group in here would it be 70, 70, whatever it is. I've forgotten. What's the currency here again? Three thousand. So we might be talking about you know thirty five, forty thousand ringgit a year or something like that. Okay. How much of that should you um, should you give away? Well, the way you work it out is by working out how generous God has been to you. You've got obligations, there are responsibilities, there's all that sort of stuff. Let me say, the trick though is what do you do as you earn more money? Okay, Some of you are probably uh, at the peak or on the taper side of what you're going to earn in your life. All right? That happens when you, uh, you get close to retirement. Most of you are well below that age. So you're on the ascendancy in terms of your income into the future. What do you do as your income increases? I want to suggest to you that as you earn more money, you work out how to be more gracious with it. Um, The tithe is very attractive to Christian people. One of the reasons it's attractive is because it permits me to be more and more greedy as my income goes up. 
So when I'm on um, uh, 40,000 ringgit a year, I give I tithe it, you know, so I give 4,000 ringgit away. When I'm on 100,000 ringgit a year, as my professional standing goes up, I'm giving 10,000 ringgit. When I'm on 40,000 ringgit, I give 4,000 away. I'm living on 36,000 ringgit. When I'm on 100,000 ringgit a year and I give 10,000 away, I'm giving twice as much away, but I am living on 90,000 ringgit. I'm being extraordinarily much more extravagant with myself the richer I get. That's the convenience of the legalism of the tithe. Okay. Gracious thinking. I reckon should... I'm just about to substitute another legalistic form of giving to you instead of the tithe, but don't take it that way, okay? It seems to me that grace driving your heart means what you think about is, how can I allow the generosity that God has shown me to flow in my life? Which means you're constantly asking the question, how can I be generous with my money? How can I give more and more and more and more away for the work of the Lord and for serving his purposes in this world? So when my income goes up from 40,000 ringgit to 100,000 ringgit a year, right, I'm still living on my 34,000 ringgit a year and I'm giving away 70,000 ringgit. That's grace. Now, maybe it won't quite work out that way. Your responsibilities change. Your obligations change. But let me say, the greedy heart always needs examining. Sue and I, we're uh, now, uh, Sue's not, not 50, I am. Um, the global crisis has hit and uh, I managed to put money into superannuation, superannuation last year and at the end of the year I owed them money. Uh, you know, it was an extraordinary thing. I was generous with them during the year and I still owed them money at the end of the year. My superannuation went down. Right? At, at this rate, uh, by the time I retire, I'll owe them 50000 you know, it's a, it's a, you know, having contributed generously for a lot of my life. You know. um, it, but there are lots of people much worse off than I am in terms of that sort of approach. But my situation in life is that I have three children who've now finished high school. And what's happened to us is our money has started to free up a bit because our obligations to them are starting to go down. I'm not holding my breath, but you know, uh, that's the sort of uh, stage of life that we're at. Okay. When I realised our money was freeing up, what did I instinctively do? I instinctively started thinking about some of the things I was going to spend my freed up money on. You know, uh, upgrading car, uh, television. Uh, there are a number of things I thought. My instinct was not, you beauty, I can now give away more for the gospel. It wasn't. It, it came with time, but it wasn't the instinctive thing to do. I actually hope that I will grow in this area so that when I am graciously given more by God, I'll instinctively think, how can I be more generous with my money for the work of the gospel? What I'm suggesting is, uh, is not my idea, uh, the idea of proportional giving. Um, I think Ronald Sider uh, from the United States was the one to pioneer it. If you want to follow it through, is a book by, uh, an article that's been written by John Dixon in a book that I've forgotten the title of, but uh, on the whole idea of that proportional giving. But I want to suggest to you that as I read it, I thought this makes a lot more sense of what it means to be generous. God, who is incredibly rich, gave his son for our salvation. 
everything. And that means that everything we have is the Lord's. And so in this area of finance, what you do is you say, God has given me everything. How can I be more and more and more and increasingly generous with what God has given me for the work of his gospel? Can I also say that you need to think this one through with other believers? Often, um, I've said as a small group question, let me take you back to it briefly. Uh, Matthew chapter 6. Do you know how it said that Christians should do their giving in secret? You know, and that's uh, part of the reason why we never talk about how much we give. Um, it comes from... Uh, it comes from Matthew chapter 6 in particular, I think. And I just want to show you why the logic's wrong and why we should talk about what we give. Chapter 6. Be careful to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give uh, to the needy, do not, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or on the streets to be honoured by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Okay. Your giving should be in secret. We're all very comfortable with this. Uh, Keeping what we do with our money secret. That's the cultural thing in KL, is it? Yeah, yeah, it's a cultural thing in Australia. Okay. Um, Okay. Go on immediately to verse 5 of Matthew chapter 6. It's about prayer. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray, standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who, who sees what is done in secret, he'll reward you. And when you pray, and on it goes. Okay, here is my rule for smack. Do not do any public praying. Okay? I noticed you've been doing it over the weekend. People have led us publicly in prayer. I want to rebuke you. Rebuke you. Right? Because obviously the scriptures say, don't do it. Do it in secret. You should have been going to your rooms and praying. Andrew Chia, you ought to be rebuked for running a prayer meeting last night where we all prayed together. Okay? It's clear here in Matthew chapter 6. You don't believe me, do you? But you do believe you should only give in private. See the point? See, one follows immediately after the other. It's not saying don't pray publicly. It's saying don't be a hypocrite. It's saying it's not saying don't give publicly. It's saying don't be a hypocrite. Like in all areas of the Christian life, I think this area of money is one we need to be more open with each other about. We need to be more frank. Now you need to do that non-hypocritically. Uh, don't get me wrong Uh, which means you need to do it with people that you're not trying to impress you need to do it with people who are strong brothers and sisters in Christ you need to have that open discussion and you need to hold each other accountable and the reason you need to do it is because we live in such a materialistic and greedy culture and if you aren't regulated in that area with other brothers and sisters in Christ you'll go down the drain right? I think this is an area to be accountable in. We need accountability. With Sue and I, 
uh, let me say, Sue is by nature one of the world's generous people. Right? So she'll see a need and she'll say, we ought to give uh, for that need. And I'll say, do you think we should earn the money first? And she'll say, no. <laughs> I'll say, typical, she's been reading 2 Corinthians chapter 8, those Macedonians giving out of their poverty, you know, and here we go again. You know, it's, uh, and yet Sue has been incredibly helpful for me because by nature... Um, I struggle with generosity. And yet over the years, uh, God has answered prayers and he's changed my heart. And I've been very thankful for that. I want to keep growing in this area though because I don't find it easy for all sorts of reasons, background and, and that sort of thing. You know, I'm tempted to think that I could have been earning 20 times more what I'm earning now if I stayed in law. And yet I'm so thankful I'm not because then I would have had a bigger issue to wrestle with. <laughs> I mean, I would have prayed that God would have made me faithful. But in his mercy, I've had to work this out on a smaller level. So and I, each year, have just tried to work out how we can be more generous with what God has given us. So each year, we've made a point of just continuing to increase what we give. What we give. At this stage, um, we give something like, it's a bit over 20% of our income. Um, I don't think we're being overly generous. I suspect we could do more and I hope we'll just keep increasing as time goes on. I don't know what you give. And I don't need to know what you give. Uh, You don't need to come and see me and we can have a discussion about it. Can I encourage you to do one thing? That is to ponder the work of God's grace in your life and to do that before you examine your budget. You want grace to drive your budget. Okay, we've been thinking about the whole question of money and God's guidance. We've looked at all sorts of different issues. And when you consider it, the Bible has a huge amount to say about money. Second uh, in the New Testament, only to the kingdom of God. I think God thinks it's important to us. It's something we need to consider. We need to apply it, friends. We need to grow in our godliness. If you have a preoccupation with money, you probably haven't got this area right. If it occupies too much of your time, it's too important. We need to be consistent with who we are as Christian people. We need to listen to the word of God. We need to let it shape our minds and our hearts in this area above all others. And friends, here's the question you need to keep praying. How do I grow in the grace of giving? Is that your prayer? That needs to be your prayer. Grace when it comes to money. Grace when it comes to the giving of your life. Grace when it comes to evangelism and the giving of the gospel. In other words, we're praying that God will shape us, Romans 8.28, to be just like his son. Which is where we started uh, when we, we came here on Friday. Romans 8.28. God's purpose for you, glorify him, grow more like your son. So we spent two days going nowhere. We've come back to our starting point, haven't we? Here is the purpose of life. So let's pray that God will help us do it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you know this is um, an area we find it tough to deal with. You know that um, it's an easy one uh, to talk about and to instill Uh, guilt 
in us. And yet, Father, we know that you don't want us to live as guilty people. We know you want us to live as free people, liberated by your gospel. And, Father, we pray that a great wind of liberty will will just blow through our lives when it comes to this matter of money, Uh, that we will uh, just understand the grace of the gospel so powerfully and that it will just uh, blow through us in a marvellous way so that we are increasingly generous when it comes to what you've entrusted to us. So in every year of life, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word. Uh, We thank you that in this area you actually speak an enormous amount to us, not about dollars on lines, uh, but about minds and hearts, your purpose, our role in that. And we thank you that that you've entrusted so much to us uh, in every area, but including in our resources. And we pray that you will just enable us to be enormously generous for your glory and honour. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.